And I think a lot of entrepreneurs fall into the trap of, you know, raising money and deploying capital too quickly when they have concept market fit. And there's just something fundamentally about the pieces of the puzzle that you've assembled that's just not quite ready to scale. Hey everybody, welcome back to Founder Vision. This is Brett Kistler, I'm your host, and today I'm speaking with Caleb Avery. Caleb is the founder and CEO of Tilled.com. How are you doing today, Caleb? I'm doing great. How's your day going so far, Brett? Yeah, I'm doing really well. Just got to San Francisco, first time I've been here in a couple of months. Uh, so it's good to see some friends and drop back into the old digs. Fantastic. Yeah, it's uh, interesting to start traveling again. Uh, I feel like everything's been shut down. We just got back from a, a trip going back east, and it was just nice to be able to go see some friends, see some family, and have a little bit of normalcy. Yeah. Yeah. Where are you located? Uh, I live in Boulder, Colorado, most of the year. Awesome. Well, tell me a little bit about Tilled. Give me that uh, 30 second pitch. And... Yeah, I'll try and keep it to 30 seconds. So uh, at Tilled, the, the core of what we do, we call it PayFac as a service. And the idea is that we allow ISVs and vertical software companies to monetize the payments flowing through their platform. And so what that looks like, uh, companies are able to come to Tilled, integrate into our APIs and SDKs and take advantage of the benefits of the payment facilitator model uh, and monetize their payments without having to hire any new employees, without taking on any additional liability. Uh, and yet they're creating this incredible new revenue stream for their business through our platform. Wonderful. And I, I heard you recently raised your Series A. We did, yeah. So about three months ago, we raised an $11 million Series A round that was led by Rebecca Lynn at Canvas Ventures. Uh, it's definitely catapulted us uh, forward and really allowed us to accelerate the, the hiring and the pace of growth for, for the business. Yeah, that's exciting. Is, has it, so is this your first time raising money as a founder or have you done this before? So I founded my first business uh, when I was in college. And initially that looked like my partner and I going door to door uh, selling payment processing services to small business owners. And that business was completely bootstrapped. Uh, and so, you know, we took that business from literally, you know, two guys going out on the street with business cards, scaled that up to the point where we've got over 100 sales agents and, you know, pretty good sized business. But that was a totally bootstrapped uh, environment. And then between that business and founding Tilled, I was actually sitting on the other side of the table uh, doing a fair amount of investments. So I had two partners that we were investing uh, our own cash and ended up doing 22 uh, startup deals before I got uh, really inspired to, to go found uh, Tilled. And so it's really been my first time sitting on this side, you know, of the, the founder side of the table, uh, raising capital. Uh, but I was fortunate to have that experience, uh, you know, understanding what uh, the VCs were, were looking for based on my experience being on the, the other side of the table. Yeah, I can imagine that was really helpful for for your raise to be able to sp speak with VCs from within their own language and also knowing what kind of uh, you know, what kind of advantages they might try to get or what kind of needs they might have or what they're looking for. I'm, I'm curious when you went from, so you, you bootstrapped your own business successfully and that grew. And then, so you ended up with some money, you ended up having contact with some money and you started this, this fund or, or did you start a fund or were you just involved in it? It, it wasn't necessarily a fund. We, we called ourselves a, a VC firm. It was really our own capital uh, that, that we were investing that, that we put to work across 22 uh, companies, but we didn't have LPs. It was really just the, the three of us, you know, making decisions on what we wanted to invest in, which was a nice way to do it where we didn't have, you know, formal investment committee process. We didn't have LPs to answer to. We were able to invest in things that we were personally interested in. 
So, so yeah, that's really interesting. So you went from you went from founding a business successfully, as we said, to going into into funding and uh, and investing. What did you learn that you didn't like? What what surprised you when you started investing in other companies from that role, where you're very hands off and you're just kind of betting on what other people are doing in their businesses, but not actually hands on managing them? What were what were some of the initial early lessons that that came up for you? Yeah, great question. I think, you know, a c- couple of things came out of it. I think one, just, just the importance of the the founding team uh, is just so important where a lot of the deals that we were investing in were incredibly early stage where not quite an idea, but certainly not product market fit. You know, they, they mm-hmm. maybe had, you know, a beta customer or something like that. And for a lot of those businesses, the idea that they had when they first started pitching to us or even after we invested fundamentally changed over the first you know, 12, 18, 24 months of being involved uh, with these companies. And the great founding teams were able to adapt to you know, those changing circumstances where you know, when you're an entrepreneur founding a business, you have a hypothesis. <laughs> you think, I have this great idea. I have you know, some technology that's going to come in and change this market. But the, the kind of rubber hits the road when you get out there and you try and get customers to pay, you know, for whatever it is that, that you built. And for a lot of uh, entrepreneurs, they find that they have to make some tweaks to, to the product to actually find that that product market fit uh, within whatever vertical they're operating in. And the great teams are able to, you know, accept that market feedback uh, and not be too proud, you know, of their of their vision and say, OK, you know, I'm going to listen to what the customer has to say, kind of distill that through my experience and then make, you know, whatever tweaks we need to make either to the messaging, the positioning or the product or, or even the pricing uh, to be able to, to get traction and, and ultimately get customers to, you know, pay for what it is that, that we're selling here. So what, what would you say is the biggest difference that you found between between bootstrapping where you have to have revenue supporting all of your growth <laughs> and you're really testing all of your hypotheses and it's it's got a quick feedback loop to the success and health of your company versus you know putting raising money and or investing in a company and having having the company be solvent with this sort of artificial capital with the hope of a future fit How, what's the biggest difference that you've found so far in in that experience yeah i mean capital is this double edged sword where it really gives you the opportunity to be able to grow you know the business the way that you want to and uh, a lot of what we've been able to do with that capital is really hire personnel uh, way ahead of time that you know if we were having to wait for revenues to catch up we just wouldn't have been able to justify the the pace of hiring the advantage of that is that you're able to get people that are specialists uh, in what they're doing much earlier on. Whereas when you're in a bootstrap environment, you're wearing so many hats. And that was even how it was for us in the early days of Tilt. You know, if I look back a year ago, there were four of us uh, on the team before we actually raised uh, outside capital. And so, you know, I'm leading product, I'm leading marketing, I'm leading sales, uh, you know, and so you're, you're just wearing all these hats. Whereas once you're able to, to raise capital and you, you hit this kind of inflection point where you're able to start scaling up headcount, where you bring in, you know, directors and VPs of marketing and operations and sales and all these things. And so as an executive, you have to be willing to trust, you know, the team that, that you're bringing on board. And a lot of it happens so much faster when you're in that venture backed environment. Whereas when you're in the bootstrapped environment, you may make one or two senior hires in a year. Whereas in this venture backed environment, I mean, we've doubled the team just in the last 90 days. And so it's just the, the pace at which mm-hmm. the, the environment and the team, you know, around you is, is changing is, is so much faster. And you have to be, you know, uh, excited to adapt uh, and willing to, to kind of adapt to, to the environment that's just ever changing around you. 
Yeah. So how how do you then with with this additional capital available? And so you're you're still in like this. You just raised your Series A, so you're in this journey right now. How do you balance the the sort of the wish list of oh we could have this headcount for this and that and also ensure that what you're doing is remaining in connection with your market so that you don't find yourself having spent a ton of money moving in slightly the wrong direction and being far off the goal after running for a period of time. Yeah, that that discipline is so important as a as a founder. And I think I go back to this concept of, of product market fit and, and it's really, you know, the market telling you that the combination of the the technology, the price point, the process, the procedures, the team are the right combination of factors. And and all of that comes back to listening to your customers. And if you're if you're in that feedback loop, and I, I try and keep myself as close to that voice of the customer as I can to know, like, okay, these parts of the business are really working phenomenally well. These things are going pretty well, but we need to make a few changes. And okay, you know, I'm identifying, you know, some some issues and opportunities uh, over here. And so, you know, let's say, you know, you've got some issues on on the marketing side of the business. Well, when you have capital, you have the ability to to throw capital at the problem, but that might not be the right answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can't just throw money at every single problem. And, and have it go away. Sometimes it's tempting when you have you know that balance sheet to, to do that. But I think you really have to be diligent and understand like what's the root cause of the problem uh, that I have you know going on. And it might just be hey the individual that's in that role is not the right one for the role, or hey we can make some tweaks uh, to the process that'll help them you know me be more successful. And you know it's not always hey we need to go hire seven more people uh, you know to to do this job. Sometimes that's the answer. Um, but I think having that that discipline. Uh, you know, in your head to, to really think through like, what's the best way to solve this problem, but really use that that capital as an asset. That's the, the way that I think about it. The capital is a resource. And sometimes that's the best way to solve the problem, but sometimes it's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's if you if you don't solve the problem itself and you throw capital at it to try to solve it, you can just make a much bigger problem. No, totally agree. And I think one of the things that our, one of our investors, Peterson Ventures, said, they, they said there's this stage early on where you have uh, concept market fit, which is not product market mm. fit. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs fall into the trap of you know raising money and deploying capital too quickly when they have concept market fit. And there's just something fundamentally about the pieces of the puzzle that you've assembled that's just not quite ready to scale. And, you know, you go spend a million dollars on, you know, marketing efforts, bring in all these top of funnel leads and something's not right, uh, you know, with that that product or service, you're ruining your reputation in the market and you're just wasting, you know, all those leads that are coming in. Whereas once you, you really feel like you've got that engine humming, that's the point where you can really double down and invest that capital and really start scaling up, mm-hmm. you know, the top of funnel leads because you're confident that you're not going to have this leak at the bottom of the, the funnel when you go to actually implement, you know, your clients. Yeah. So, so tell me then, how do you yourself as the leader here keep an open mind to make sure that you aren't contributing to some kind of dissociation from reality or, uh, you know, like being too bought into a particular story or a particular idea of fit and running with it in the wrong direction. What do you, what do you do? You, you talked about being in connection with your customers a lot, but uh, what do you do internally to, to wake up every morning with like, being ready to make a different decision than you did yesterday because the data has changed? Yeah, so on one of our team calls yesterday, uh, I, I said the CEO is not always right. Uh, in this context, we were talking about the, the CEO of another company, uh, but it applies to me as well. Like every decision that I make is not always right. Uh, I may have a lot of conviction in kind of how I'm saying it, 
But for me, it really comes down to trust in the team that I've assembled around me. And if they come to me and say, hey, Caleb, you know, we've got a problem. The system, you know, just isn't working. Even if I was the guy that picked, uh, you know, that system originally, I think you have to have the, the kind of uh, humility to just say, look, I've hired an expert in their domain to come in and advise me on how to run, you know, this part of the business and, you know, go back to like what I learned uh, during my time investing. I think the the CEOs that really have that that true like leadership quality of being able to listen to their teams and admit when they're wrong and just say, look, I messed up on this. This was the wrong decision. I trust you. You know, let's go fix it. Those are the businesses that are able to move forward. Whereas if you're just stuck in your vision and say, look, I don't care what anybody else is saying. I don't care about the feedback loop from the customer or the team or whatever. That's when you get stuck in this run mm-hmm. because you're just not listening to to the data that's that's coming in around you. But you have to be open and willing to, to listen to, to that data. And the, the kind of caveat to that is sometimes the, the data may not be right. Uh, you know, you may have someone on your team that's coming and giving you feedback, but maybe, maybe they didn't hear what the customer was saying, you know, hundred percent. And you need to go verify that, you know, what they understood the, the problem to be is actually what the problem is before you make, you know, monument, monumental changes to, to how your business is operating. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's an example of having learned that the, you know, the hard way or the, you know, the difficult way, uh, in your experience? Yeah. So, you know, I think for, for me, one of the, you know, original decisions that, that I made, uh, going back, you know, three years ago to, to the original, you know, founding of Tilled was this idea of, Hey, I think offshore, uh, you know, developers are going to be a great way for, for us to, to, to get started out of the gate. And, you know, it was a factor of cost. You know, I'm trying to self-fund, uh, this business. Hey, let's, let's go find, you know, the cheapest development resources. And I think, you know, almost immediately I realized this is this is probably not <laughs> going to be the the direction uh, that, that we you know we're gonna go you know long term for the business ended up bring everything in-house bring it, brought it all um, you know domestic and so we've got an entire team of you know onshore domestic full-time developers uh, on staff but that was something where you know I, I just made a mistake I, I made uh, you know a fundamentally wrong decision we scrapped you know all, all of that uh, you know original code re- rewrote the software and I think are much better off. Uh, you know, for it, but it was something that I, I just had to go learn, you know, that lesson, um, you know, for myself. Yeah. Yeah. I think this, this is a common perception or a common really just experience that people have with offshore teams. And what, what is it in particular that was, that you think was behind this, uh, the failure of that, of that model for you? Yeah. So I, I don't want to sit here and say that offshore engineering can't work, <laughs> you know, for, for anyone. I think for me, uh, as a non-technical founder, I just wasn't in a position to be able to, to give the oversight and the management uh, that they needed to, to really get the, the product vision that I had in my head mm. into reality. I, I really, I think in order for that to have worked, I really would have needed, you know, some, some product managers, may, maybe, um, you know, higher level, you know, onshore engineering talent to translate my wish list into, you know, product development strategy and a roadmap for, for them to, to go implement. And I think it was that that lack of direction uh, that I was mm. providing them that was part of the problem. Uh, I also think it's difficult to 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 vet and find uh, great developers in general. Hmm. Yeah, indeed. So, 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 yeah. Continuing, you you moved you moved your development in house, and that gave you a lot more. What what it really gave you, you're saying, is a connection to the team, so that they could really download what your vision was and. This has served you really, really well now getting to this to this point that you're at. And what are what are the next challenges that you have um, for for your hiring and for your 
for your the growth of your team? Yeah. So, you know, as we sit here today, uh, we're a little over, thir- I think we're at 31 uh, employees for, for the team and expecting to get to about 50 uh, people before the, the end of the year. And, and what's interesting about that, that transition point from when you've got, you know, 10 or 15 employees to now 30 and then getting to, you know, 50, you end up with this this layer of like middle management, the, the director and the, the VP levels in the company where, you know, when there's 10 people, everyone has that that kind of direct line to, to the entire, uh, you know, executive team. And then as you as you get into to scaling the business, you know, you end up just based on the number of people uh, on the team, you have to have, uh, you know, a, a management level uh, that's managing, you know, teams underneath them. And I think one of the things that, that we've spent a lot of time on over the last month or so is really the, the culture and the communication, uh, you know, style across the team to make sure that everyone knows like the proper ways to address, you know, conflict within the team and like, mm-hmm. hey, here's how, you know, the chain of communication works and here's when it's appropriate to talk to this person and, and that person. And, and that's been, you know, I think one of the, the interesting things about navigating scaling so quickly is just understanding kind of how the culture uh, of the team has to adapt and being really conscious about the the like organizational development and organizational health of the team because if you're not focused on that as you scale up the the culture can can run away uh you know pretty quickly mm. yeah give me an example of what that looks like yeah sure um so you know i think example being you know uh on the marketing side of our of our business you know previously I was really running, uh, you know, marketing and, and had, you know, a number of people that, that were, you know, working with me on, uh, you know, a daily basis. And we've now hired a, a VP of marketing and, and she's really now running uh, that department on a daily basis. And so a lot of that communication that, you know, from the team used to flow directly to me now really funnels uh, through our, our VP of marketing, which I think is healthy because I, I can't physically manage, uh, you know, 50 people. It's just not possible for one individual to have, you know, that many people. Uh, you know, reporting uh, directly to them. And so in order for the business to grow and scale, you know, you have to be okay uh, with, you know, the the structure of the organization changing over time. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that seems that seems true. What so what kind of resistance might you have if you if you have a bunch of people who are reporting to you directly, and they've been developing personal relationships with you and all the all the subtext behind the, the professional information sharing, and then, you know, as you're growing, you start adding these middle layers. And I, would, I imagine, and I've, I've experienced this in my company, I've seen this in others, it's just that there's this kind of, a, a, you know, a loss of some kind of like small family business style experience and into transitioning towards in the direction of like big corporateness. And I feel like a lot of people feel like some kind of loss of connection there or some resistance or just feel like, wait, no, we're a different kind of company. We don't need these layers. Uh, how do you address that? Or how, how has that come up for you? Is that is that your experience at all? Um, I, I think if you're if you're not intentional about how the organization is developing, that that can you know certainly easily happen. I think for us, uh, two things that we've tried to do. One is really getting the team together in person uh, as much as we we possibly can. So even though a lot of the team is distributed. 
every so often we're having a lot of the team, you know, fly into to Boulder and get together and have, you know, things happen out of the office. So we go grab dinner, or we go, uh, you know, grab a beer, or, you know, whatever it is that, that we're doing as a team, uh, just get out of the office and, and have some, you know, personal uh, time to develop that that personal relationship uh, outside of, you know, the, the chain of command uh, at work. I think the second thing that, that we've done uh, is have an all employee call on Friday. So we do kind of a happy hour uh, style conversation where, you know, we have the entire company, uh, you know, in one room where there's still that that open dialogue and that open uh, communication. So uh, both, you know, people at different levels of the company, but also within different departments are able to, to interact, you know, with everybody on the team. And I think it creates um, that, that open line of communication where everybody feels like if they have an issue and, you know, they need to, you know, come to us or if they have something positive and they want to say, mm-hmm. hey, hey, Caleb, this fantastic thing, uh, you know, happened, they, they can share that and, you know, still come to me. And so it's not eliminating that that direct relationship. It's really just um, allowing for the business to have space to grow by by bringing in people that can help support the growth of the business. Yeah. So like as you're growing, you're maintaining the possibility for people to be seeing you and having interactions with you. It's not like they're suddenly just having this wall, this other layer pl- placed in place. Yeah. And I think that's important. You know, we, we certainly don't want to create, you know, a, a bureaucratic feel as a, as a team of, uh, you know, 30. I, I just think there there's this balance and finding that balance is, is really the tricky point. And I, I think, you know, it's natural that at some point in time that the balance is going to swing, you know, one way or the other. And, you know, part of my job uh, and the le- the other the job of the other leaders that we brought on the team is really finding that balance across all points of the organization where people feel like there is, you know, open dialogue and courage, but it's not, you know, a free for all uh, environment. Yeah, absolutely. So in, in uh, the pre notes from the call, I I had to ask you something about you have something about the uh, the three legged stool. Can you tell me a little bit about that? <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's an, an analogy that a couple of the guys on the on the team are, are, are fond of. But when we think about our our payfac as a service solution, there's really three elements to it, and I, I think it's part of what really differentiates uh, payfac as a service, which is Tilt's approach relative to managed payfac, payfac in a box, and some of the other strategies that are on the market. So the three legs of the stool are payments, uh, implementation, and support, and technology. And so, um, you know, what's unique about Tilt is that it's not just technology that we're providing. We're really providing a turnkey solution. So we're providing, you know, a white glove implementation experience. We're providing tier one support. Uh, and so on top of that, you know, fantastic technology, you've got a team of professionals that can help you get it launched and, and manage your business going forward. And then from a payments perspective, you know, we're providing you that that direct, you know, agreement and the direct path to, to process the payments, as well as providing all the back office, you know, compliance, operations, underwriting support. And so it's truly this turnkey, uh, you know, solution that's that's giving people the ability to turn on this this new payfac. Uh, experience for for their customers without having to worry about compliance and underwriting and implementation and support and developing you know your own technology you just come complete a simple integration into our APIs and you're you're really off to the races. Hmm. Wow, well that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Caleb. And I'm really grateful for you joining us. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, thanks, Brett. Really appreciate you having me on today. <laughs>